Hi there everyone, it's Dave Levine here. Thanks for joining me for episode number 47 of the Sports Stories podcast. The podcast where we delve and dive into the lives and the stories of those people that have had successful careers in and through sports. Now before we jump into today's guest, I would just like to take us back to last week's guest. Last week I had on with me Daniel Brown MBE and I was referring to her as a double Olympic gold winning para-athlete and I've been brought to my attention by a really special um, listener to the show, Mr. Ian B, that actually this is not possible. Daniel's been really, really successful in her career um, and what she has been is a two times Paralympic gold medalist and the first para-athlete to represent England in able-bodied archery. Daniel has overcome a number of really great challenges throughout her career and showed her resilience and her passion and tenacity to really be successful in her career. It was a great pleasure to have her on the show last week and I just wanted to make clear about her title and what she's actually achieved. Now leading on to today's guest, I've also got a very successful individual who's also worked and been at the very top of their profession. Today's guest is Brian Ashton MBE. Brian Ashton has been referred to as being rebellious, he's curious, He's a learner, he's challenging yet supportive in his approach. He really has worked at the top of his game and has really worked with a number of individuals to help them reach peak performance as well as challenge themselves to be the very best they can be. Now I'd really suggest today is a podcast where you need to sit back and really listen deeply and grab a pen and paper. Brian will be provocative, he'll be challenging, he'll bring some really great insights, but he'll also be really supportive in his way of really trying to challenge you to be the very best that you can. And he really epitomizes that in his own personal behavior. He also is semi-retired now. And for me, somebody who's semi-retired still demonstrates the passion for learning and curiosity to drive forward is unbelievable. It's with great pleasure, therefore, that I introduce my special guest today, former England Rugby Union head coach, taking them to the 2007 World Cup and a hugely experienced people developer, Mr. Brian Ashton. Brian, it's really great to have you with me on the Sports Stories podcast. Thanks ever so much for, for joining me. Um, I am sort of uh, destined to want to uh, introduce you as the, you know, the former England head coach, took the, uh, the team to the 2007 World Cup. Um, would you like to just give yourself a bit of an introduction, just so those that don't know who you are, and most people probably do, but just give me a little bit of a background as to who you are and what you've done quickly. Right, yeah, well, born in the 1940s, 1946 <laughs> to be precise in a place called Lee in South Lancashire, which is a great rugby league town. Um, yeah, so I'm a, a sort of a child of the 50s, really, I suppose. Uh, the street games, 50s, where I learned to play all my sport with no coaching, which, looking back now, sometimes I think was a real blessing. Um, I was uh, adolescent in the 60s, which is a pretty rebellious decade that most people uh, of, of that era will remember. And I sort of entered into that... Uh, with great gusto and spirit by getting expelled from Lancaster Royal Grammar School. So that was my rebellious streak coming up. But my first, I'd, my main profession before rugby went professional was a teacher. I taught for almost a quarter of a century, taught history. And, um, but in the middle of the, the, my teaching span, I spent five years abroad, two years playing in France and three years in Italy, I suppose. That was also an indication of my rebellious streak because <laughs> the game was still amateur and I got paid. Um, but I'm not sure there's anything that anyone can do about that now, so I really don't care. But that, that, that would, those were fantastic times, to be honest, Dave, because um, not only did they give me a real 
um, insight into how other people looked at games. Yeah. But it was also obviously it was a different culture, different language, a different way of living. So I actually grew in those five years quite dramatically, I think, as a person. And it's actually changed my outlook on life. Um, I became far more tolerant of differences, people with differences, etc. Where before that, probably because I'd almost been hemmed in the northwest of England for most of the time. Then, uh, you so you, you, your worldly view broadened a bit. Is that I've, what you sort of said? Well, broadened hell of a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd, I've been on tours by then. I've been to uh, been to Australia with England as a player. I went to South Africa with North of England as a player. I've been to the Canada and the States. So I'd seen a little bit of the world, but. Uh, you don't see a great deal of the world when you go on a sports tour because um, there's far too much training and stuff like that. Um, so it, it was really good to, to actually go to two countries that were non-English speaking right. and had totally different culture, one from the other, despite the fact they've got a common border and obviously a totally different one from ours, despite the fact there's only, what is it, 25 mile English channel separating us and France. I know. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Well, look, Brian, let, yeah. let, let's continue to play to your rebellious streak, eh? And what we're going to do here, I guess, today is, is just chuck a few ideas on the table and go with them and, and see yeah. where they go. You know, together we've talked uh, a lot over the last few years or so around coaching, coach development, where it's going. And I'm really keen to just explore the idea of kind of VUCA coaching. And I know that's a term that you've been using quite a lot yeah. recently. Can you just give us a bit of a sense of how, how you've come to that term or how, how's that bubbled up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there's two things, actually. One is a guy called Kevin Roberts that I need to mention right at the very start. He's a very close friend of mine. He's an advisor. We, I'm not sure we'd, we stopped using the word mentor now. I know, I know we actually work <laughs> as mentors for, for Premier League football, but uh, his deputy came up with a really good word as conciliary, which is... Uh, Thinking it's Italian mafia word, I'm not quite sure. Probably got darker undertones than the one <laughs> way in which we're using it. Um, but he, we, we're old boys, so like I said, all grammar school. In fact, he was the second guy to get expelled three years after I did. Um, so we formed, led a, way. <laughs> yeah, formed a very close bond and, and we, we formed this little, little uh, niche in the old Lancastrians club, which is a black sheep society. There's only two of us in it because you could have <laughs> expelled from the school and you've got to reach you've got to be world changing in some way or other in what you've done in life so um yeah so i was talking with him a while ago now and he he sort of introduced the phrase to me he said um he said you you're you're coaching he said um you you're you you're very good in terms of being able to deal with a vuca world and a vuca game and i said what are you talking about yeah vuca and he explained to me that it was, it was originally, I think it was an American or American stroke UK military term yeah. to describe the change in the approaches to warfare because of the digital revolution. Right. And that it became, you know, totally different approaches, obviously, um, with the advance in technology, etc. And they changed, said it's become, the, the world has become a VUCA world. It's a world that's volatile it's uncertain, it's complex, and it's ambiguous. So, I mean, wow, we've probably lived through 15 months of that, haven't we, since the I coronavirus? Just... <laughs> and so, and I must admit, it's been really interesting to, to watch and listen to how people have dealt with it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, I think I've been pretty cool about it all. 
um, because I understand the nature of what's going on. I don't understand the science of what's going on, yeah. etc. But I understand the sort of nature of what's going on, and and I think I've actually preached the Buka messages often enough now to be able to sort of accept it into my daily life. Yeah. When, when you when you say you understand what what's going on, not the science, but what do you mean by that? I think the sort of the emotions and the yeah. the barriers that people seem seem to seem to put up. But I mean, you know, when you get a when you get a, a pandemic like that, it's inevitable that's going to happen. So you just got to accept it and get on with life. Um, and whereas maybe years ago I would have sort of kicked out against it and so, and actually with to no effect whatsoever, because there's no way you're going to have an impact. Um, it doesn't matter what you say, what you do. Um, so it's just you know just accept it, get on with life, and make the best of it. And it's been um, yeah, it's been what was the phrase? survive yeah survive revive and thrive yeah yeah survive revive and thrive that's right yeah so i think i'm i'm probably in the thrive mode now right uh, okay i've had the virus i've had two jabs i feel i don't feel like oh i don't look like superman i know that but I probably don't don't feel quite like it but i'm i'm pretty happy with life you, you've had it all <laughs> yeah so um, why we got sidetracked onto that, I have no idea. Oh, because we're living through a VUCA world. Yeah. And yeah, so, so we talked about this and Kevin said, and I, and I went away and, and thought about it and I thought, actually, the game that I've been mainly associated with, but I think most games really, certainly games played by teams, team sports played on a, on a, yeah. on a fairly large area where there are lots of moving parts and problems to solve and decisions to make um, with a guy with a whistle trying to, do his best to spoil everybody's fun, etc. Yeah, I said, well, I, I got back to him. I said, I'm pretty sure, you know, that you could actually rugby and football and cricket and games like this, probably you could describe them as VUCA games. Mm. There is a lot of volatility. There is a lot of uncertainty, complexity and ambig ambiguity. And um, and it was, we were talking about this. He said, do you know what's really strange about this? He said, um, I was actually giving a lecture at Stanford University in the States to their business uh, business undergraduates. And uh, he, he asked them, he mentioned the word VUCA. And one of them said, oh, sorry, we've not, not heard this before. This is going back some time now. Yeah. And, uh, and he said to them, instead of telling them, he said, well, what do you think it is? So they had a sort of five-minute break and they sat down and obviously pretty smart people at Stanford. Yeah. And they came up with four different words. So they came up with vibrant, unreal, uh, crazy and amazing. And so they had a conversation about why that had happened and this, that, and the other. And he, he explained what the, the VUCA that the military had come up with was. But whilst we were talking, I, I thought, wow, this would be a great way to describe coaches who can actually navigate the way through and become successful in a VUCA game. Coaches who are vibrant, coaches who are unreal, coaches who are crazy, have a crazy element to them, yeah. and will produce amazing results. So, the, I mean, if, if I explain my game, if, just to give practical examples of what we're talking about now, yeah, yeah. so the VUCA game of rugby... Uh, it's volatile, so it's a game of movement over approximately, on a full-size pitch, including the in goal areas, 8,400 8, square metres, um, and only 31 square metres by 30 players and a referee occupied at any one time. 
So that leaves 8,369 square metres, I've got my maths correct, yeah. empty at any given time. Yeah. And I constantly get told there's no space in the modern game. I'm thinking, Jesus. That doesn't add up, does it? <laughs> not, not quite, no. And I know it changes dramatically and there's all sorts of other things as well. Um, but it's been able to deal with that and, you know, say, so right, if there is a challenge here, but there is a solution because there is space around. Why do, why do people say there's no space then? Well, it's a bit of a cop-out, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it makes... Uh, I think something... I, I, like a lot of coaching cliches, it's something for coaches to hide behind if things go wrong. Right. Yeah, there's another one in rugby. Earn the right to go wide. Now, no one's... I've heard top coaches around the world say that, but no one's ever been able to explain what it means to me. So, anyway, so that's volatile, uncertain. Um, I mean, the, the, the game has lots of uncertainty. Once that first whistle goes, I mean, you're never quite sure how you're going to play. Uh, never quite sure how the opposition's going to play, although, as we were talking before about analysis and data and stuff like that, people are more and more sure, I think. Um, you never sort of... Injuries are something that can occur at any time, so that, uh, that throws... Um, a bit of confusion into the mix. Your red cards, yellow cards, you know, you, you, you best, one of your best players can get red carded. Yeah. Um, refereeing interpretations and decisions, etc., can have a, a massive effect on the, the mental side of the game. Yeah. So there's a lot of uncertainty. The seeds for the complex, well, that's what the laws of the game are very complex, full stop, and that's the end of that. You know, there's no getting away from that. It's about time somebody simplified them in our game. Um, but, but the ambiguity in our game, and I, and I think maybe this is the same in lots of other sports, is that there are two, there have been two gods of coaching in rugby in this country, the gods of possession and territory. And yet I've seen top world-leading teams around, around the world who've won games comfortably without winning either of those two battles. It's, it's, it's not the quantity of possession and territory that you achieve, it's the quality of what you do when you do achieve it. Right. Um, so and that puts a totally different slant on your coaching, obviously. So the Super VUCA, so we need, so we got this game, so we need Super VUCA coaches to be able to to advise on how we're going to deal with this. The 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 V is for vibrant, so there we got coaches who are radical optimists, who are realistically positive and uh, and proactive, purposeful and passionate people that really uh, they eliminate the abominable no men in the environments who constantly saying, well, that looks fantastic, but that looks great, but that probably, yeah, but it might not work. And we just get rid of those really positive, optimistic people. Um, then we have the unreal for the U part of Super VUCA. Yeah. And these are coaches who constantly emerging, which all coaches should. I mean, I, for me, this is a no brainer, constantly coming up with new ideas, constantly pushing boundaries, constantly looking to live on the edge and constantly, this is a phrase I came up with a few years ago, constantly practicing the notion of impossibility. So when people turn around and say, oh, yeah, but that won't work, that's impossible. That is a green light for me to say, I'll show you. You know, and maybe 5% of the time you do, 95% of the time they were right, but the 5% you do, you get to jump on the rest of the world. So, Brian, what, why do you push that and go and kind of show them the notion of impossibility and they don't? What, what's the difference between you I and them? Think, I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's part of my upbringing. You know, I, I talked earlier on about playing in the streets in the 50s, you know, and yeah. we were, 
were, there were no adults around, no referees. We're incredibly self. We, it, looking back, I felt as though very self-sufficient, self-managing, yeah. self-improving. I didn't have a coach, yeah. but we found a way of doing things. And, and I'll never forget the very first. It wasn't a. It was a South Lancashire. Lee was a, a coal mining and textile town. It's right in the centre of the coal mining textile industries. So it wasn't a wealthy town at all, and uh, we just lived in a council terraced uh, rented house. My, my parents never owned a house in their lives. And I can remember the very first day we played rugby, and there was a cobbled sort of street dividing the, where we live with the, the other side the, and, and other uh, row of houses, and that was our rugby league pitch. Um, and somebody who lived on a corner one day bought a car and parked it there. <laughs> Whoa! What are you doing? <laughs> you can't do that. It's always that. It was 1954. I remember it because I remember that we were due to play our version of Warrington versus Halifax Rugby League Challenge Cup wow. final, and of course, so I went and knocked on the door and said, "Can you go and park your car somewhere else <laughs> for the next three or four hours whilst we play our final?" A fair play to them; they did. Yes. But I mean, it's that's the sort of thing. You, you things like obstacles like that were popping up all the time. I remember we were playing a test match once. On the other side of the road, where there's a fantastic dirt track that we use as our wicket, but it was next to the textile factory, and we're sort of halfway through England's innings. It was England, Australia, and the factory siren went off <laughs> with the fire alarm. All these people came pouring out of the factory right across the pitch. It's like a pitch invasion. Okay, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, get back in. Yeah. Um, so you, you just, you, I think, and over a period of time, you developed develop this mentality of finding a way yeah. to do things so that when people turn around and said to me oh, that's just not possible I say well hang on a minute how do you know until you try and find a way to do it you know practice this impossibility that you talk about and see a if you can find a solution to what you think is not possible but b if you can't there might be another spin-off that you've never even considered before and you can actually go down that route and add that to your game so I suppose it's part of the Having this growth mindset of and um, and accepting personal challenge is part of my DNA, really. Yeah, and I, just, I, and I guess that's where my mind went is whether you can actually develop this mindset, this way of thinking. Is this something that you've been brought up with, or you know, or what's stopping coaches go down this track of you know pushing the boundaries and this notion of impossibility? Well, I would imagine the answer is fear, right? Because um, if you're actually coaching this then you need to give just a broad framework of how you operate and within that some freedom and flexibility to players to be able to experiment and, and try things and a lot of coaches are terrified of that of, of not being in control a of a generally of not being in control of the environment b not being seen to be in control of the environment by peer groups peer coaches who might be observing the session See, I think if the players that you're working with have come from a real command control background, yeah. where they've been ex their expectations that the coach knows everything and tells them what to do, so there's a fear that the players might think this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He keeps asking us questions instead of telling us things. And I think also, obviously, in the professional world, there might be the fear of, you know, if if I operate like this and success is elusive initially, well, what are the people employed me going to think? So I think there's a big fear element in this. Yeah. And that external perception, isn't it, often? because Yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it might well be, to be honest, David, that um, 
that you need to be able to go down that route, you probably need a little bit of experience. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's quite difficult for young coaches to, to overcome all those fears. Um, I think it's pretty natural to want to be in control when you start your coaching life. Mm. Um, just have some order in what's going on. Uh, and, and I guess or the belief, because I'm hearing from you that you've grown your belief in this, actually, that this methodology or this approach is both exciting, but there's some real uh, positive performance gains in it. You know, yeah, that's why. yeah, I mean, absolutely. And if you can create this sort of vibrant family environment, um, which obviously is probably the strongest bond we have, the family yeah. bond, um, and, and people will actually buy into this, then, uh, you know, I, I've been in environments at school level, at club level and international level as well, where that's happened. And, you know, the site, it's been, it's been so exciting. And it's been very difficult for the opposition to, to play against. Uh, and it's been, and underpin it all, it's been fantastic fun. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, there's nothing, for me, there's nothing better in life than doing something different and it working. Uh, you know, I, I, I just cannot imagine myself uh, sitting around doing the same thing day in, day out, even now at the age of 74, in the middle of a pandemic, when I sort of semi-retired, et cetera, I still look for things to do during the day um, that maybe, or do them slightly differently, or... And Brian, has that then always been you, do you think? Right the way yeah, from, yeah. you know, from Lancaster Grammar School, all the way through, pretty much? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's been me since I was a little kid. Yeah. yeah. Um, sure. And I, and I was, you know, the, whether, whether this is part of it or not, I've no idea, but it was... I won a scholarship to Lancaster Grammar School and, and, and in fact I was on the front page for photograph of the Lee Journal in my Lancaster Grammar School um, uniform because no one knew of anybody from Lee who'd ever been to a boarding school before. Wow. And it was my headmaster at the junior school in Lee who suggested to my parents, he said, I think your son's nature, his characteristics are probably better suited to a boarding education and going to the local grammar school. I, I mean, I ended up at local grammar school anyway. I'm going to expel from Lancaster. So I did two years there and thoroughly enjoyed it. Well. I'd have got both. <laughs> yeah, so the, there, must, there must have been something um, in my characteristics. But uh, yeah, so just moving on from Unreal. So yeah. the next one was crazy. Yeah. Uh, so sort of, it's the crazy coaches, the guys that we've just been talking about, I suppose, who take these ideas, take these impossible notions and actually make them work. So we're sort of a bit of a missing link in the coaching world. We'll take on board crazy ideas. Um, we're sort of like the mad scientists that suddenly come up with a good solution. And I would say I'd compare the crazy coaches to the people like Dick Fosbury, yeah. who in 1968 at Penn State University, I think, ran up to a high jump bar and jumped over backwards. Everybody the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> and he was a really smart guy and he had a couple of the international athletics international athletics federation rule book in his bag and he took it out gave it to the judges and said tell me in there where it says i can't go over backwards and of course it didn't so i think he broke the world record won the olympic gold in mexico that year then retired because he, he'd done what he set out to do was just change the world of athletics and i think this is what crazy coaches this is their mindset we want to change the way the game's played some way, shape or form. It might be only a tiny little way, but we've got this changing mindset. Um, so instead of being world-class coaches, they're world-changing coaches. 
yeah. which for me is far more exciting because I've come the faintest idea what a world class coach is. Yeah, and and I and I guess that idea of world changing is also that going into the unknown, isn't it? Because we don't know what's out there or what's yeah. possible. Yeah, and and again, I think the the coaches that have any any element of fear in their makeup probably won't tread that path of the uncertainty, the the unknown, the unpredictable, um, what's over the horizon, and you know I'm desperate to get out there and have a look, and what's a lot of people won't even go to the edge uh, to have a look. I'm quite happy to jump over the edge and see what happens. See yeah. what happens. <laughs> yeah. See what's there. <laughs> jumped over it a few times. I'm still here. It's not always been successful, but at least I'm still here. When, yeah. when, when, do, you, when do you think you've jumped <laughs> over it then? Can you give us an example of times where you feel you've properly been that kind of super VUCA coach? Yeah, I think, well, it, it, in fact, to be honest, I, I need to give, uh, as well as Kevin Roberts, who introduced me to this notion and but I think he recognized that I was well on the way to being if this sort of thing exists being the super VUCA coach anyway there was um when I first started I was <clears throat> excuse me completely the opposite I was a real command control guy I was uh, very directive instructive authoritative you know I, I was in charge of the environment you, you do as I tell you Etc. And the world will be fine, which is complete nonsense, um, because the the nature of the game and actually the nature of the subject I taught history wasn't like that. You know, if I tell you this is the day this happened, then you're going to be fine when you go up to your exam. Not not one pupil ever thought to put his hand up and say, "Well, why did it happen?" <laughs> so that sort of thing. So it was actually, and the big mistake was. And I think this is a significant difference too, was in my early days in the classroom, I taught the subject and not the pupil. Okay. And in my early coaching days, I taught the game and not the players. Um, so I had no emotional connection um, with people whatsoever. And I think that's, that, that's a pretty key point, I think, in terms of coach development, to, to have this, these emotional and social connections. How, how did that switch then, Brian? You know, when did you yeah. start realising actually coaching the game and not the players was not working for you or not right or you had a different view about that? Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was whilst I was in France and Italy right. uh, that indicated before. So I actually, one of my early games in France, I played for the team that is now known as Clermont Avenue. It was known as Ars Montferrand in Clermont Ferrand in those days. Very good side. Um, and one of the early games we played was against Stade Toulouse, who were still, well, in fact, they're in the European final this season again. And um, they played a, a totally different form of rugby I'd ever seen in my life. Couldn't believe it. They hardly ever went to ground. They all stayed on the feet, kept the ball moving as much as possible. I'd never seen anything like this at all. And so um, I, I sought out their coach after the game, and it was a guy called Pierre Villepre, who played fullback for France, um, who was a real pioneer. He, was, he had an educational background as well. Uh, which is interesting. So the sort of um, the themes of learning and how to learn were always really important to him and obviously to me because I was a teacher. Um, and I had a chat with him and he, he talked about, yeah, he said a lot of the work, <clears throat> he said most of the work we do is around problem solving, decision making. So it always, uh, my practices always involve opposition. They're always related to what happens in a game but allow the players 
um, the time um, and the opportunities, the space and the opportunities um, to, to, to practice, to try and come up with a solution uh, to what the problems are that I set them. Yeah. And he said, and you know, I've found over the years they become they become better decision makers in the moment, i.e., as the game is in motion, uh, than they were before. But he said, you know, it's not the easiest way to go to coach. The easy way is to tell people what to do. He said, but you only get short-term results. He said, because you probably have to tell them again next week. Um, if you actually, if, if they solve the problem, they find a way, and you're actually guiding them down that pathway, then the chances are it will stick with them, that they'll come up with what they think is their solution. I mean, it might be your solution, but they think it's theirs, and you guided them down that pathway. But I guess it's whether he was willing to, to embrace the difficulty of the longer-term approach and, and stick with it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I suppose if you look at the modern world of professional coaching now, I mean, it's so results-orientated mm -hmm. that uh, some coaches, again, might think, whoa, hang on a minute, do I really want to be going down this route? Um, even though the logic dictates ultimately it's going to be far more successful, the more decision makers, problem solvers, players will take responsibility, ownership and leadership out on the field you've got, the chances are you're going to have more success. Um, but the problem is, because of the short-termism and the results and the people who employ you, I suppose in most sports, know next to nothing about the game itself and even less about coaching. I mean, even the media know nothing about coaching. So then it's a, it's a tricky line to yeah it's a tricky line to to try and stay on to try and stay balanced on um but he actually funnily enough I, I i two years in france i went to italy and played and coached in italy and he got appointed completely coincidentally at the same time as the technical director of the italian rugby federation so we spent three years in italy together formed a really close friendship i spent two summers in the early 80s at stade toulouse uh, then he came over uh, when I was teaching up in the northwest of England. He came over and spent a bit of time with me. And, um, and when I was appointed, eventually head coach at Bath Rugby in 1993 or four, I think it was, the first thing I did in pre-season was invite him over right. to come and run. He, he stayed for a week and ran three or four sessions in the week. And it was quite interesting. <laughs> One of the players turned around to me and said, well, Brian, that's pretty brave. I'll be bringing him over. I said, why? He said, because he's a better coach than you. <laughs> and, it, and I said, well, I know that. I said, and that's why I brought him over. I yeah, said, well, so you get a different perspective on, you know, how the game can be played. And that's an interesting insight, isn't it? When somebody says he's, he's better than you, and then that's brave, because it's kind of, well, that's the idea again of, you know, being kind of unreal or breaking the boundaries, isn't it? Why yeah. feel threatened by the fact that you're bringing people around? I'm sure you've got other expertise rather than, He's better yeah. than you, you know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was it was. I mean, it was a bit of a throwaway line because yeah. um, um, the the guy who mentioned who said it was a guy called Jerry Guscott. All right. A lot of people, and he actually when when I got married the second time, he was the best man at our wedding. So um, I don't. There was no malice in it, but it but it was a really interesting comment. Yeah. Um, but the what what I liked about it was the fact when he said he said that was pretty brave of you, and I think he meant that. Yeah. Because I think as a young coach, I would never have done anything like that at all. I would have been terrified um, for the reasons that you just mentioned, yeah. like feeling threatened. threatened. Suddenly in front of you know this group of players or pupils to introduce somebody into the environment who knew far more about the subject I was teaching or the game I was coaching than I did. You know, it, it, it never crossed my mind that. 
Brian, Brian what, do you, what would you say is probably the two or three key learnings you took from that whole experience of bringing him over and spending that time with him for those years? Um, well, it, it completely revolutionised my way of looking at uh, coaching. Prior to that, I'd been very much a technical coach, technical and sort of drills-based, systems-based, game plan-based coach. And he, the way he looked at the game was a very holistic, global sort of approach. Um, and, and so the, the approach, the coaching approach was from the game itself. And um, I can remember when he'd gone that I sat down um, during school holidays and got hold of some of the videotapes, as we had in those days, <laughs> of some of the Bath games the previous season. And went through them and designed my coaching sessions to make sure there was no doubt that they were real to the game itself. And what I used to do was to click on the video when we'd scored a try and then work backwards to where it originated from, whether it was a scrum line out, uh, turnover, kick to us, turnover in the tattle, whatever, and look at all the different elements that are involved in making the try in making sure the try was scored then design training sessions around that so i, I started to <clears throat> i think i called it outcome-based training start with the outcome the principle of the session would be right this is the outcome you know you've got to score a try this is the starting point okay how are you going to do it what do we need to do it what do we need in our armory to do it mm. and um, and the same without the ball if the opposition scored against us yeah yeah we let this try in. This is where it started. These are the mistakes we've made. Now let's design a session to make sure that doesn't happen again. And yeah. you know, it, what was really good about it, and I was very fortunate, to be honest with you, Dave, in that um, I had a very, very strong group of players there. Most of them were international players. So they were quite knowledgeable about the game. So I tapped into their knowledge. Mm. I think that was another change. I suddenly realised the importance of engaging with people. Mm. Tapped into their knowledge because... You know, these are the guys that were going to go out and, and, and fight in the, in, the, in the battle arena. Yeah, yeah, not me. I was stood on a touchline. I sat in the stand. There's a real principle there, though, Brian, for me about, again, you know, tapping into people's knowledge and their expertise and using what's the resource that people have within them. Yeah, you know, because you brought you brought coaches in that might have perceived or threatened you, you know, by actually engaging players and engaging their their. Uh, their knowledge and their experience could be threatening to a coach, couldn't it? But actually you saw it as a real advantage to actually maximise the expertise and the experience and the knowledge and the know-how and, and everything that's out there rather than putting yourself up front and centre. Yeah, and I, and I think it's part, again, it's part and parcel of what we talked about earlier on about finding a way to get better, mm. <clears throat> finding a way to solve problems or finding a way to make the impossible possible. You know, you explore every avenue. And if one of the avenues in bringing someone else from the outside in to help you do that, it's a tapping into the knowledge of some of the players who play in positions that you never played in uh, and they play at international level, why the hell wouldn't you tap into their knowledge? Because they know more about that element of the game than I do. So it'd be crazy not to. But there's still, I think even now, there's still this fear of seeming, I suppose, not to be all knowledgeable. Om omniscient is that the word well i've, I've heard it before i'm not sure <laughs> yeah. i think it is yeah 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 it's, no, uh, which, which is just crazy which is just crazy yeah well 
and, and coming through to the, the end of our Super VUCA coaches, so we've done the VEU, um, the C, what would you say the, the A is for? Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, amazing. it's the behaviours and results that you produce. If you get the top three right, and uh, like I said before, that um, I just some of the super super VUCA. Um, I'm trying to think of the right word to describe it. Well, I'll, I'll just use things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where where it's been relatively successful at school level, I had a, a team in my la very last year of teaching, to be honest who played a whole season out kicking the ball once. Now, that was quite remarkable, that, because, I mean, the, the, the game of rugby is not designed to be played like that. And when they asked me, could they do it, I said, the, my immediate response was no. And when they, they asked you what? Whether they could kick yeah. it or not kick it? No, not kick it. Okay, yeah, yeah. You know, we, the three of the senior, well, senior, they're only 17, came to me and said, look, we, we, we've had a bit of a chat. And, and they actually said to me, we read a couple of weeks ago in the paper, that you meant to be the most creative coach in the country. Of course, that always sets alarm bells ringing because you think, oh, God, what's God. going to happen now? <laughs> and they came up with this. I mean, I never even... And my immediate response was no. I said, it just can't be done. I said, wow, well, you pinned on your own line, five-metre scrum from your own line. I said, you know, how are you going to get out of there? Anyway, they persuaded me. Uh, I said, well, let's give it a go for the first three games of the season. Yeah. I knew you could probably man imagine what happened. We won all three games by 40-odd points. I think we scored an average of seven tries a game throughout the year. Um, but what was fascinating about that was they took me, you talked about uncertainty and unpredictability. Jeez, <laughs> we had no idea where we were going when we set off on this particular journey because I'd never coached a game like that before. They'd never played the game like that before. So it's a real pioneer in three or four months. How did that come about then, Brad? Because, you know, those guys stepping up and going into the unknown, you going, you know, persuading you to go into that unknown. What allowed that to happen? Well, I, 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 honestly, I, it's, I, it's difficult to remember now, but yeah. I think, I think I, we actually, well, there's a couple of things. I think they'd not been all that successful as a group of players. Okay. And none of these guys went on to play the game at any level after me. <laughs> um, and so I think... There was a mindset of difference. I mean, one of the leading lights of this became Elton John. Well, he still is Elton John's operations manager. So, I mean, he's obviously got a different view of the world. To be able to hang on to that job for 20 years is <laughs> work with someone like that. Is, you need to a different mindset to the normal. Yeah. Um, but the other thing was we played in a pre-season tournament, 15 aside, but it was, I think it was only 10 or 15 minutes each way. And it was a round robin sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I, I do remember in the, in the very first game, that we played were about three or four games going on in the same area. So the pitches are side by side. So our flyer kicked the ball off the pitch and it sort of blew in the wind across the other pitch and landed on the third one along. And it took about three minutes to get back. So I said at half time, I said to him, I said, that was pretty smart, wasn't it? He said, what? I said, we're playing for 10 minutes and for three minutes, <laughs> you kick the ball, we can't play. I said, and he didn't kick it again. And I think that's where it originated. So they played the whole tournament, never kicked the ball again. Of course, I never thought anything about it. But know. I guess that's pushing those boundaries, isn't it? It's entering well, into yeah. the unknown there, isn't it? That's right. And I think what it had done, it sort of triggered something in their heads, thinking, I wonder if we can play like this. So they came and asked. I said no. They persuaded me yes. Played 13 games. We won 12 out of 13. We could have won the 13th, but they refused to take a penalty in front of the post. With about five minutes to go that would have won the game. 
um, and they tapped it and ran it, lost possession and never got it back again. And I, I just wondered actually what their response would be after the game and they were absolutely delighted that they'd not kicked the penalty yeah. because it stuck to the guns. So, And it's, it's really interesting. It was a really interesting uh, insight into how young people with mindsets like that operate. Mm. You know, they'd actually, in their mind, they'd succeeded despite the fact the season wasn't unbeaten and could have been because they'd stuck to their principles of how right. they're going to play the game. And I, I, I just think it's fantastic. And I'm down just outside Bath at the moment, and it's not, it's 30 miles from where I, that school was. And a lot of the pupils are still around the area. And I actually met them last year for the first time for 20 odd years. And uh, they were flying in from all over the world. One of the guys did the electric show, the lights showing for the 2012 Olympics in London. So, you know, they were, <laughs> you would never have guessed in your life these guys would go on to do things like that. And it was interesting, them talking about, they said that was the, they didn't realise the challenge you'd taken on, mm. um, but they were determined to see it through. And they, they said it, it has, for some of them, it's had a real impact on how they've approached their lives since then. Do you know what? And it really makes me think there about the kind of, you know, what we measure as success. You know, is it results or how we can change the focus of what we're doing? And I just love the idea of these guys. It's, it sounds like anyway that their measure of success was to go the whole season without kicking the ball, yeah. you know, and actually win, lose or draw. And it, it really plays to that idea of, you know, focusing on doing things the way we believe and the yeah. result will kind of look after itself. And I, I just think it's yeah. amazing the power of that. Absolutely. And if you do it well enough, then the chances are that you're going to be pretty successful. That's it's right. like anything in life, isn't it? Since I was talking, um, <clears throat> it was via Zoom because I was not allowed to travel now. I, I still still been working for the new, with New Zealand rugby, yeah. and I was on a uh, on a presentation, a coach coach award, a coaching course, sorry, coach development course from coaches around the world, but we're all on screen. And one of the other guys who was presenting was Wayne Smith, who's an ex All Blacks coach and a, probably alongside Pierre Villepreux, probably the best rugby coaches that have existed since I've been on this earth, uh, certainly. And at one point, he, one of the, um, somebody asked him a question. He, he came up with the answer. He said, it's the way you run the race, not the way you win it that counts. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that is a pretty powerful statement, that. And I think the point he, well, in fact, I know the point he was making was, it is about getting the processes right. right. The chances of winning, if you get the processes wrong, pretty limited you might get away with it sure through pure luck on the odd occasion but the chances are that you won't do you think everybody plays to that a philosophy or approach though because I'm, I'm not i'm not sure that they do you know no. some people will think i'm not doesn't matter how we run the race as long as we win yeah and I, th I, th I think there's two things one is i i believe that you've got to get your processes right to yeah. to have pretty sustained excellence sustained, in, yeah. in, in, in the organisation. And the other thing, I think the the public demand in New Zealand is, yeah, fine, they win, but they've got to win in a certain way. Yeah. So he probably sort of got a squint view of things for, from what the public expectations were, whereas my suspicion is over here for, well, obviously, Anglo-Saxon mentality may be that win at all costs. Yeah, doesn't matter what it looks like, as long as we win. Yeah. But I think I think that's a very short term way of looking at things, and actually can actually lead to not winning. Yeah, 
yeah because there was something about sustained isn't there the, and, and the value of winning and the way in which we win seems to be so much more important doesn't it in, in that. yeah i mean uh, you look at the footballing world and the last time we won a world cup was 1966 so you can hardly say despite the fact that we've got some of the best players in the world playing in the premier league that we've had sustained excellence at international level we've had we've had, in fact we've had the opposite you could argue I want to bring us up to date here. And I'm just thinking that, you know, given this whole idea of super VUCA coaches, um, what's the implication, do you believe, for sort of coach development and coach education? What, what are we doing well and what are we not doing so well if we're trying to move towards this idea of a super VUCA coach? Yeah, I think one of the key things to, to remember is, well, certainly one of the key things I, I constantly remember is this, it, what, it, what it means is you do not, ignore the fundamentals of, of peak performance. You know, the basic, the basic things that underpin the technical side of the game, the physical conditioning side of the game, um, they underpin everything that happens. So they're not thrown out of the water, they're just as important, if even more important. It's how you fit them into the sessions that, 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 that is different. Um, but I think, I think there are two areas that are really important. If, if, if you want this, if you want to be a successful super booker coach, we've got to call him that yeah. or her that, is, is developing game intelligence right. and developing, and you'll be the expert in this one, mental robustness and agility. Um, I, I think going back to something maybe we discussed, I can't remember whether, whether we were talking off camera before or not, but we talked about analysis. Yeah. And data, etc., flooding into sports now. And my senses and my fear is that this is slowly eroding the game intelligence of the players because they're actually playing to numbers, systems, and structures. So they're playing the system and the structure on the field instead of playing the environment that surrounds them and doing the right thing at the right time, making the right decision at the right time changing the way the game's being played because we're not being successful. Um, so I think the game intelligence thing certainly has, has a big impact on that. And, and the other side was the, as I mentioned before, the mental robustness and agility. You know, you, you need to operate in this way. You need to be focused on two things, I think. Number one, always keep the bigger picture in mind, whatever that might be. And secondly, the ability to focus intensely on the task at hand i.e when you are in direct um when you're directly in the action and um, so the bigger picture for me would be yes what is our purpose what are, um, my team purpose has always been to play play to win by scoring tries that's our bigger picture so everything we do we aim gear towards that um but the the, the task at hand is I'm in possession of the ball. What am I going to do with this to make sure that we score a try? Right. So uh, it's always related to your positive, to your outcome and your purpose. Yeah, yeah. And if I'm not in possession of the ball, I'm stood 50 metres away under the side of the field. What am I doing in that moment to make sure that if that ball comes anywhere near me, however it gets here, that I'm in, I'm going to be able to contribute to make sure we score that try. So again, positively focused again, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So you never, you never drift away from what's going on and you're constantly thinking, what is my role here? The play's 50 metres away over there. What is my role here? And there was, a, there was an absolute classic, if anybody 
who listens to this wants to have a look. Just I know it's a rugby clip, but it's yeah. from a general sporting uh, sense to illustrate that is in 2013, the All Blacks played Ireland in yeah. Dublin, and um, it was the last game of their season. They played 13 internationals, won all 13. No side in the professional era had ever won every single international game in a year. And they were ravaged with injury. They're obviously knackered through travelling around the world, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I think after about 20 minutes, they were 19-0 down, which was unheard of. They'd never lost to Ireland in 108 years. So there was a double-edged sword here yeah. that, <laughs> A, they wouldn't have the unbeaten record uh, in the season, and B, this would be the first All Blacks team ever to lose to Ireland. And you that, don't want that. <laughs> a bit of a burden to carry that. And they got to, they managed to scramble back into the game, but with about five minutes to go, I think, Ireland were awarded a penalty, uh, which was eminently kickable, but they missed it. And apparently, because I know one of the coaches who was involved at the time, and he was saying that uh, that McCall, before the players went back to take the 22 dropout, he said, Ireland had just opened the door for us to win the game. Despite the fact they've been playing badly, never been ahead on the scoreboard, he said, we've now, and he said, you know, let's take the opportunity, let's just go out and play. That The, the only instructions he gave them, let's go out and play. Kind of freed them up to go. <laughs> yeah. So with 20 seconds to go, they were still losing. Um, they won a penalty in their own 22. And two minutes later, they scored a winning try. And it was the, the way that they did it was quite remarkable because it was pretty evident. The ball went all over the field from side to side, forwards, backwards. They kept possession for two, two minutes, which is quite remarkable in itself at the end of a, an, an 80-odd minute international game. But the way the players focused when they were nowhere near the ball, so the ball would go to the left-hand touchline, but the guys on the right-hand side of the field, if you see the panoramic view, were working incredibly hard without the ball to make sure that if it came back their way, they were in the right position to be able, you know, to make sure to do something positive with it. And it was quite a remarkable display, really. Um, and the, the, the coach said to me, he said, we've been practising these scenarios for two years. He said, and, you know, it's really gratifying that, uh, it's that paid off. we got the opportunity. <laughs> he said, not that we wanted to play badly and yeah. get in that position, but to know that actually it had paid off and, you know, we could do it under the most intense pressure. <clears throat> Incredible. Brian, I'm also sat here thinking as we're talking, you know, what examples are out there of, of coaches that work in this kind of way? You know, people listening into this will be going, okay, I, I kind of get the idea of the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, but who, who do I see sort of behaving and working in this way and really beginning to bring this to life? You've mentioned, you know, Wayne Smith, Pierre Vilpro. Are there any others, would you say, of, of people? There's got, there's got to be. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. In, in, in all the sports around the world, I would imagine in, in American in basketball, you hear some of the great coaches that have been to the past. I think they probably sort of fit into this category as well. Yeah. Um, I would imagine people like Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp and, 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 and others like that, they will, you know, they will have a claim to... I, I remember um, a, a quote that was attributed to Guardiola uh, not that long ago, actually, about three years ago, he said, when the players cross that white line, they take control of everything that happens next. You know, and if you operate in a, 
in a non-super VUCA way, if you're a command control coach, then that just does not happen. Mm. You know, and he, he, he might jump up and down in his technical box on the touchline, but I think that's probably an emotional thing more than anything else, because who the hell's going to hear you in a stadium of 60,000 people, you know, if they stood even 20 yards away from you, never mind anywhere else. Um, so I think, yeah, th there will be coaches in different sports around the world who, uh, yeah. yeah. You're making a really interesting point there for me, though, about, you know, even by bringing that Guardiola sort of idea up there that coaches working in this way also really need to understand the role that they play. Yeah. You know, and what is their relationship to the players yeah. um, and how much influence and how much control can they actually have? Yeah, well, I, I, I think, I actually think you're coaching this way, you have far more influence over what goes on um, than you do if you're a command control sort of coach. It might seem not to be the case, but actually you're facilitating and guiding and you're actually enhancing the environment when it's required. Um, what you're not doing is interfering with it, uh, which a command control coach will do. He'll interfere with things. And it, it's actually almost by definition, it's the prescriptive way of doing things and prescriptive leads to restrictive. Um, I, there's a really, I've got a really good story about this. Um, I'm a, my, my sport is cricket. I'm a massive cricket fan. I play cricket to a relatively high level uh, with some really good players in Lancashire. And uh, I was reading, and I reread it every now and again, purely for this chapter. Michael Atherton, who is ex-England captain, now the Sky Sports pundit, and I think he writes in the Times as well. Yeah. Um, he wrote his book, his autobiography, and it was called Opening Up, because he was opening batsman, obviously. And there was, a ch there was one chapter on coaching, and he talks about the season when... Um, there's a guy, I think it was a guy called David Watmore, who was an Australian, ex-Australian test player, who was coach at Lancashire. And a month into the season, he got appointed as a national coach somewhere else. And the Lancashire board decided to let him go straight away. Right. And this is no reflection on him as a coach. But Michael Atherton said, and suddenly after that, he said, we had the most enjoyable and successful season we ever had at, Lan I ever had at Lancashire. I think they won the county championship. He said, we played some outstanding cricket. And he said, we never had a coach. And he said, you know, and he said, it, it just illustrated to him how important it is that players actually, um, when they get out into the arena, they run the show. Um, you know, they're given a lot of help and a lot of guidance outside that. Um, but the guidance and the help they're given must enable them to be able to make the right decisions to do the right things at the right time, whether it's technical, physical, game intelligence-wise or mental and that the sessions that you have are going to be designed around that to pass over responsibility, ownership, leadership to the players. So, you know, if you get those three right, responsibility, ownership, leadership, you can give them the freedom then. You're happy to give them some freedom to go out and, and sort out the environment, however it happens to, in whatever direction it happens to go. And it was really interesting. It sort of, when I read it, I just sort of, not a eureka moment, because I already knew, but I went, yay! I was yeah. sat, actually, I was sat in the bar in the garden of a house in Lancaster that we used to own. We built a bar in the garden. <laughs> I was reading the books. I went, yay! Like, On your no, own. <laughs> yeah. Wife came running out. She said, what's going on? What's the matter? And I told her. And she got oh, Margie Bryan. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You, you also mentioned there again, and you mentioned it a couple of times, that the idea of enjoyment. Where does that all fit in? To all of this, mm, I think it underpins everything. 
I mean, we start playing games because we enjoy playing games. And I, again, going back to the street games, I mean, I played with kids of all shapes and sizes, um, some of whom did it because it was a thing we did in those days. But actually, they'd no, um, they'd no great pretensions, I don't think, of going on and, and, and actually pursuing sport at any, any level whatsoever, particularly. Um, but, but I did, and I, I enjoyed it, and it was that enjoyment that really attracted me. To, to try and improve. And I think, you know, why would you want to take up a sport as a profession if fundamentally you don't enjoy it? I can't believe for one minute that guys who play Premier League football and Premiership rugby uh, don't enjoy the game of rugby. What I can believe, though, is through uh, prescriptive and restrictive coaching, they enjoy it less than they should do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think fun underpins everything. And I think there was an article, Dan Carter, Excuse me, the ex-All Blacks number 10 was, uh, it was over the weekend, I think. Someone had interviewed him either in the Guardian, no, Guardian, Saturday morning, and I picked it up online. And he said, we've got to keep the fun in the game, otherwise it'll just go stale for all the players. And I thought, got it. if somebody like that is saying, you know, he's probably the best number 10 that the world's ever seen, probably one of the greatest rugby players the world's ever seen. If he's saying that, and you take notice. Um, but that... But you will know, David, I suppose, in, in any walk of life, if people are enjoying themselves and they're in good spirits, then you get more out of them than if, mm. you know, you ain't going to get a top performance out of 15 miserable buggers on a rugby field. Uh, yeah. And so. I think, you know, and I, and I play back to probably the, the principle of everything you're saying. If we make it game related and build on it and play to people's strengths and the positivity, which you know is something that i've heard come through in everything you've described it all these all seem like ingredients towards um both both enjoyment but also leads to high performance and success yeah you know and i know it sounds really simple but i'm also paralleling that as, as you're talking to you know the idea of of a vuca coach but actually vuca leader all of the kind of concepts around business you know are, are very similar well, or not dissimilar no you're absolutely right and in fact going back to kevin kevin roberts again who first sort of raised this with me. I mean, he was world chief executive Sarchi and Sarchi at the time, the advertising company now runs his own Red Rose consulting business. And he adopted that approach in his, uh, in the business world, you know, and he's, he's, he's traveled the world talking about it. You know, other people have picked up on it now um, and it's become a more familiar phrase, I think in the business world than it was before transferred from military to business. And now, some of us dragged it into sport oh. as well. I'm not sure that it's all that familiar a phrase, VUCA, Super VUCA in sport. No. I don't know. Maybe not I'm... yet, not yet, but this is why we're talking about it, isn't it? Because yeah. it's well, maybe, hopefully. It's yeah. making the connections. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, but it's, I mean, for me, it's, you talk about the positivity. It's a really exciting way in which to operate because there is that element of uncertainty about it all the time. So, somebody asked me about, Oh, a couple of years ago about some of the sessions I did. I said, well, I tell you, I said, this, this might sound really silly now. I said, but at times, and especially with that no kicking thing, but also at other times as well, they sort of, I described the sessions as full of mystery and intrigue. Yeah. And they said, why? I said, well, you know what, you know what your outcome is because you set the outcome at the start, but you've no idea, to be honest, how you're going to get there. You think, you know, you think, you know, a way, and then suddenly the bloody players turn around and come up with a better one. And again, going back to that courage aspect, and that's what you go with. 
Mm. So you allow them the opportunity to explore it. Uh, and they come up with what they think is, a, is, is the answer. And, you know, you've obviously you're not told them what's in your head. Yeah. Um, but you just go with what they come up with. Yeah. Um, we're not constraining them, are we? <laughs> oh, well, we're doing completely we're opposite. the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. We're allowing them the opportunity to explore uh, the environment, whatever it is. Uh, to find the most positive outcome. Yeah. And Brian, you, you know, I'm, I'm conscious that you've also been down and worked with the All Blacks recently in New Zealand rugby. Is this something that they play with, the, the concept, maybe not these terms exactly, but do you feel how they set themselves up in terms of their sport and their rugby fits within this sort of philosophy and principle? Yeah, I mean, I've not worked with the All Blacks, directly with the All Blacks, but I've worked with coaches who work with the All Blacks and okay. in fact I worked with the current head coach Ian Foster 12 months ago um, and obviously ex-All Blacks come in and do some positional skills work with some of the players that are there as well so you know there's a massive wealth of knowledge you can tap into but I think they've always had this uh, this sort of more certainly in the last 20 years more free running approach to the game um, than maybe we've got up here they're less it's quite interesting because over the period of time I'm talking about, they've been more successful than any other side. But it's when you're actually in their company as people that they are so, they're so chilled out and laid back and humble. <laughs> I think it's the way New Zealanders are, um, that you think, how the hell can these guys go out and produce what they do? Yeah. But they do work incredibly hard at the things they know are important for sustained excellence that phrase that we used earlier yeah. um so when they're on it they're on it um i suspect i might be wrong in this i suspect they don't train i think they train harder but not as long as other teams mm -hmm. so their sessions are more intense and focused, focused. On, on what's really important as opposed to you know i i've done them myself uh, where I run a session, I'm 20 minutes into it and thought, geez, there's nothing different in this than what I did last week at this time. Mm. Uh, I don't think there are many of those knocking around in New Zealand. Mm. I think they'll, you know, every every session has a real purpose behind yeah, it. Yeah. So, and obviously they engage very strongly with the players. Um, there's this, I think Sir Graham Henry, who was in charge when they won the 2011 World Cup. I was having a beer with him one night um, Oh, quite a while ago now and I was saying to him I said how will you describe yourself as a, as a coach he said oh I arm my players with intent and step aside as the week goes on I thought oh, what a lovely phrase that is you know what a lovely phrase yeah and um, so it's uh, yeah it's been a really interesting it, it's it, what's been fascinating for me is I've um, as I my first ever appointment as a senior England coach, I was the assistant coach in 1985 and the senior tour to New Zealand. So it was the first time I ever operated at the top level. And I, my eyes were opened at the sort of, in those days, it was the speed at which they played the game and accuracy. And it, it was only actually working alongside them with them that I realised that it was the, the clarity and simplicity of their approach allowed them to do that. You know, there's no fancy ideas in New Zealand rugby. Um, they they might do, they might have the old player who does an un unbelievably spectacular thing, but that's because, you know, I think probably uh, the Maori mindset allows them 
you know, to think and play. And they give them the freedom to play freedom, yeah, yeah. and do things like that out in the field. But by and large, their game is it's pretty simple. You know, you go, go in the direction of the try line, so you go forward. You support the guy with the ball. And we just never let the ball die. We keep, you know, keep the continuity going as much as we can. Or, or do they just make it look simple, Brian? Well, maybe, you know, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, it is their national sport. Um, and I, I, I know there's a concern in New Zealand at the moment that less and less young kids are playing it for right. sort of, I think it's probably the concussion yeah. that's yeah. sort of resonated around the world, etc. But um but also the other thing is that they coach the sort of game I was talking about before, the game intelligence, right from square one. Yeah. We focus on the technical bits. They focus on now let's learn how to play the game first, because the technical bits dead easy to add on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, do it the other way around, it's a lot more difficult. Yeah. So they're a lot smarter players. They're street games players. They're a lot smarter when they're young kids. So, so Brian, just to, to bring us to a close, I've got two probably last questions. And one of them would be. You mentioned about Graham Henry and how he described himself as a coach. How do you describe yourself as a coach? Um, I suppose I, as a coach, I like change the way the game's played. I think that's all. For a long time now, that's been my sort of raison d'etre. Change the way the game's played. Um, and it, you know, and it, and it, that sort of futuristic mindset, that sort of adventurous approach, can actually take you into areas that you didn't even know existed. Mm. And I was dragged into one by the lads at school. Um, but actually, you know, and that was, a, that was a massive impact on me as a coach, that thinking, actually, who knows where you can go? <laughs> and I did a presentation yesterday for Rugby Union Level 4 about people performance, and I called it, I wasn't being a smart arse, I'd called it Ad Infinitum et Ultra, which is a, to infinity and beyond. And I think, you know, that, that's, for me, a coach without that mindset um, needs to seriously sit down and reflect and think about what he's doing or she's doing. You've got to just keep pushing boundaries all the time, smashing them down, looking for the next one, smashing that down. Yeah. And I'm, I'm drawn back to the idea of, you know, um, your early experiences at Lancaster Grammar School, your introduction to sport, all of those sort of things. And, I'm, and you know, as I've got to know you over the years, you know, your passion, your desire through those years and again today in terms of really wanting to, yes, push boundaries, but to help other people grow and mm. develop, whether they be players or coaches. Yeah. And I'm just wondering what advice you might give based on your experiences to up and coming coaches, um, or players across sport? Yeah, I think, well, make the best of what you've got is number one, obviously, and you never know what that is. So just keep improving all the time. But I think certainly from a coaching and playing point of view is that recognise that, um, you know, you are on this planet to help other people and as a coach to help other people get better, if you can. Um, I've never been interested in any financial rewards, any personal glory or anything like that. I'm quite a private sort of guy. Um, and Kevin Roberts' assistant, Richard Heitner, who you may have met, I don't know, wrote a great book on, um, on, his, on his style of, of, of leadership, which you can apply, I think, to, to coaching. Is, it was conciliary, leading from the shadows. I think that probably sums me up. And the way I feel that we can all do that, 
Yeah. You don't have to be out there thumping tubs saying I'm the greatest and this, that and the other. You know, we can lead and help, but do it quietly in the right sort of way from the shadows. And I think uh, you get a very satisfying life. Brilliant. What, what a powerful message there, Brian. And, you know, I know you're, you're still continuing to help others out. And I know you're trying to bring coaches together, aren't you, who are really keen to explore this kind of way of working and, and continue to challenge them and bring your expertise and value to, to what in fact, Well, in fact, to be honest, we've had our first meeting. Okay, brilliant. Three or four <laughs> weeks ago, and it sparked off a lot of uh, comments backwards and forwards on WhatsApp. Um, we've got our next meeting in a couple of weeks' time, I think. So uh, Watch this space, eh? <laughs> we've got our little group of Super VUCA coaches up in the northwest of England, and um, we're just going to explore what it means and... Well, what it means is ad infinitum et alta, to infinity and beyond. We just keep going. There's no, there's no ending in sight and never will be. Just keep getting better and better. Well, in your true rebellious style, Brian, hey, keep pushing the boundaries and seeing what we, where we can go to, hey. Um, you know, and it just really leads me to say massive thanks that, you know, I, I know I could sit here and we could talk like this all day and we do often talk about these sort of things, yeah, but yeah. I just want to give you a massive thanks for giving the time up and putting this on record because for me it's made me think and I really hope um, part of the sports stories kind of podcast theme is to to not just be entertaining but really help people think about how they do what they do why they do what they do whether it be in rugby whether it be in coaching whether it be in leadership whether it be in life actually so I think we've really yeah. pressed that button pretty yeah. solidly so thank you you're welcome and thank you it's a privilege to be on it and thank you for inviting me I know we've done a lot of work together and you know and, and Every day I try to do things, uh, as I said, slightly differently and just keep learning, keep learning from people like yourself, other people I work with by reading and watching and listening. And I think, you know, that's uh, quite important for us all to, uh, to go down that, down that path. Well, in, in, in true style, Brian, you, you've, you've shared your stuff leading from the shadows. What I would challenge us to is let, let's come back again in a year's time and, and add a different question on the table and, and you know, let's keep pushing pushing sounds and seeing where we can get to hey absolutely sounds fantastic that david yeah brilliant thanks brian and i appreciate your time take care okay you too thanks a lot cheers well there we have a, a great conversation with brian ashton it was a fabulous insight it was easy it was uh, full of absolute expression in terms of where he's been what he's done and really uh, encapsulates his whole journey beautifully uh, what was really important for me, though, is that we followed the plan, the plan for the conversation. And actually, the plan was there was no real plan. We really trusted the fact that there's mystery and intrigue and curiosity available if we just let the conversation flow. We backed our instincts. We were ready to engage. We just had in the back of our minds to add value as and as often as we possibly can and just see where the conversation left us and went with us. And that's really some of the principles around being a super VUCA coach. So hopefully really trying to live the principles of what we were talking about. What really stood out for me, though, was the ability to follow that journey. And really the things that dropped out were really clear. What Brian really stood for was that notion of impossibility. And we wanted to really test that out and play to that and really go with the flow and see what we could capture from the conversation. He was continually pushing boundaries in the conversation and in his career. He's looking for new and possible ways, not being limited by his own beliefs and his own value structures. 
So that real notion of impossibility really threaded through and gave me lots to think about and I hope it's been of interest to you as well. The second thing that really jumped out for me was the idea around um, prescription leads to restriction and, and how being quite prescriptive in whatever we do, whether as an individual or as a leader of others, can be restrictive and seeing how that might really hinder people, get in their way and actually stifle creativity and innovation and possibility. And I really like the idea how that dripped out and Brian brought that to life, yet also was quite realistic in a sense of the possibilities and the difficulties that that sometimes brings and actually how many kind of environments and contexts might stifle that or not allow that or it might it might require you to be relatively experienced in your role um, but there's a, a bit of a tension there but I really like the idea again of how prescription can be quite controlling and therefore can be restrictive and the last area that really jumped out to me was the idea of joining the dots backwards Brian kept in his conversation referring to the idea of um, him being a history teacher so his, his interest and love of history uh, his idea of being a teacher and helping people learn and develop uh, his family setup he mentioned about the power of the family and the culture and the surroundings that that brings in how we try to replicate that as a as a senior coach throughout of his career so really referencing some of his history his story and then relaying it to his actual current actions and what he did so making sense of the world and the actions that he's done. So joining the dots backwards through family, through sort of school and through education were some of the things that he really mentioned were quite powerful to him. Now, as always, I'd like to take us on to uh, posing a number of questions for you. I've got four questions that I would like to give to you today. Uh, I'm going a little bit above and beyond. I usually mention two, but the four questions I'm going to reel off are as follows. In your work and your home life, what phrases or beliefs are you currently hiding behind to reinforce your view of the world and that they may be holding you back from what you can achieve? Brian mentioned that sometimes people's views or his views reinforced what he believed and actually this stifled his, his notion of impossibility or possibility. So what's holding you back? Second question, Brian mentioned fear. Fear may be stopping people, he said. What is your relationship to fear? What are you fearful of in either work or at home that is stopping you to maximize your impact and maybe not even allowing you to bring your creativity to life? And therefore, what do you need to do to move that forward and break that cycle? The third question, where could you access or invite somebody better than you into your world to help you improve? And what is stopping you bring them into your world? Brian mentioned about a number of people that he brought in who he said were even better than him but that really drove him and inspired him and helped him to absolutely maximize his potential. And the last question, what are the fundamental basics of peak performance in your world or in your life? How do you fit these together? How could you do more or things differently to maximize your impact on performance? So really thinking about those fundamental basics and peak performance and what that means to you. Now, clearly these are really big questions and I always ask you to ponder them, think about them, take some time to digest them, but really bring them to life and help them help you. So take some time, reflect on them, jot them down. I often say, ink it, don't think it. So write it down, capture those reflections because that reflective process and the time to consider some of these questions or, or questions I've previously posed for you is what really will make the difference. Now, moving on, you know, it's really great to hear 
your success stories, what's going on for you, what's either resonated from the questions, um, but also what's really dropped out of the conversation with Brian. It's great to hear your success stories because they inspire me, they give me an insight into what you take away and I can really package things accordingly. But it also really helps me understand things that you're struggling with. What challenges do they pose for you? And again, we can look to put on further content, provide avenues for helping you explore these. So keep in touch, drop us a line, let us know how you're getting on. And as always, the place to do that would be to have a look on the website and drop us a note through that or social media. Um, so the social media platforms are the usual ones of sort of Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. And either look on the website at www.sportstories247.com. Just as a reminder, also, we have the Maximizing Your Coaching and Leadership Impact program, which is available now. This is a much more structured program where there's loads of content, but also structured frameworks, tools and reference points, but additional content to the podcast that will really help you maximizing your impact through the, the vehicles of coaching and leadership, both at work and in your personal life. So uh, please have a look at that engaging. It's a fabulous program with some many, many great insights and uh, great resources which will be available to you for for years to come and on top of that the idea of getting some coaching support we offer four coaching programs that, that are available to you some great uh, pool of experienced incredible insightful mentors that have got a great background in sport and leadership and personal development so please have a look at that as well which is on the website as uh, as mentioned before it's www.sportstories247.com and it just leaves me to sort of say, look, there's great insights from the program. Uh, it's really important for me that you take the insights, the inspiration, the education that's, uh, that you hopefully have gleaned, but without doing something with them, then you're not going to reap the rewards and the benefits. So really take the insights, inspiration, education, and, and make it into some sort of action. Plan it, small steps are great, slightly bigger steps are, are, are maybe even more beneficial, but I just would really encourage you to keep moving forward, keep taking steps forward and progressing, and you'll really reap the benefits of that. And lastly, again, thanks for joining me uh, for today's Sports Stories podcast. It's great to have you as a listener along with me. Uh, I also like to just thank the, the, uh, the guests that I've had from previous podcasts, but especially from having Brian with me today. He, he really has made me think. I hope he's made you think. But he's also given me some real great comfort in that there's some possibility and to really have fun and enjoy the journey ahead. And by doing that, we're likely to bring the very best of who we are and possibly meet our peak performance. So a really massive thanks to, to Brian. Which leads me on to next week's uh, podcast. Join me again. We've got uh, another great guest uh, coming from a slightly different perspective uh, rather than from coaching or from performing. We've got somebody that's got a, a real steep history in the world of sports administration. So hearing their story will also give you, no doubt, many nuggets of learning and some gems to really get you thinking to help you move forward. So have a great week uh, and I look forward to you joining me, Dave Levine, again for next week's Sports Stories. Uh, so until then, take care uh, and have a great week. Bye for now.